Welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. A look behind the curtain of global finance and monetary control with one of the foremost experts in the field. Author of the bestseller Web of Debt and the Public Bank Solution, Ellen Brown's groundbreaking work began the movement to create new American public banks. We'll look at issues surrounding the world of money and the systems and powers that control it, as well as the progress being made on the public banking frontier. The program is underwritten by Public Banking Associates, a national consultancy of experts advising government leaders pursuing creation of their own public banks at publicbankingassociates.com. The program called the Partnership for Progress that has created, been created by the Federal Reserve has a website that lists all of the current minority-owned banks that they consider minority-owned banks. Unfortunately, it's not a long list. Uh, I, I think the Federal Reserve probably feels that that is a somewhat of a policy failure that they haven't been able to really jumpstart uh, banking. That's our featured guest today, Dennis Ortblad, talking about his experience working with the Federal Reserve in trying to start some new minority-owned banks. Hello and welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. I'm Walt McCree, Ellen's co-host and senior advisor to the Public Banking Institute. Today on It's Our Money, we're going to revisit a conversation that Ellen and I had with a treasured colleague at the Public Banking Institute who recently passed away in Moscow, where he was studying to learn Russian. As a former American diplomat in Germany and elsewhere, Dennis Ortblad brought global perspective and experience to our work at PBI, and we were honored to have him on our board of directors. He was a guiding light for public banking in Seattle, the state of Washington, and the nation, with his coordination of resources that facilitated development of public financial institutions on a number of levels. His most recent work focused on First Nations, the Native American tribes in the South Puget Sound area near Olympia, Washington, where he consulted with five tribes that were considering creating their own banks. Now, these tribes had been banking their considerable casino revenues from their tribally owned casinos with Wall Street banks. There were just no other options, which, of course, is the same predicament that America's cities, counties, and states face, with, of course, the exception of North Dakota which has a public bank. In honor of Dennis's important work in these fields, and because our recent interview with him on this program was so rich with information about how public banking could help tribal communities and any other communities, how the Federal Reserve has indicated strong support for helping minority communities with banking infrastructure and regulatory support, and because Dennis's deep personal understanding and relations with the German Sparkassen banks from when he was in the diplomatic corps in Germany, all of which holds much information for us in the American public banking movement. So we'll be reprising that conversation that Ellen and I had with Dennis Ortblad on today's show. We think there's much to learn from a second, even a third listening to his interview with us. After that interview with Dennis, we'll be sharing an interview we had with another globally experienced member of the Public Banking Institute's Board of Advisors, Dr. Thomas Marwa, who has a new book out titled Public Banks, Decarbonization, Definancialization, and Democratization. As you can tell from that title, there are a lot of significant issues covered in this book, 
And we're going to take two programs to share them with you from an interview that I did with Thomas for our TV show, The Public Bank Solution. The first part of this edited interview will be later on in this program, and then the second part will be on our next edition of It's Our Money. Now, let's check in with Ellen. Thanks, Walt. Yes, we're all very sad to have lost our stalwart uh, board member, Dennis Ortblad. Uh, He was a pleasure to work with. He's been dedicated to the idea of public banking for a decade, ever since the um, State Bank of Washington was first introduced as a bill, I think in 2010, so that's more than a decade. Uh, Let's move on to listen to his previous interview. We're speaking with Dennis Ortblad. Uh, Dennis served in the U.S. Foreign Service as a diplomat in Germany, Japan, Poland, the Philippines, and Switzerland for over 25 years. Prior to the Foreign Service, he worked as a university instructor in Germany and North Africa. As an embassy counselor for economic and financial affairs, he learned the importance of publicly owned banks in Germany and Japan for strengthening economic development. After retirement, he has worked to promote public banks in Washington State and Seattle. So, Dennis, great to be talking to you. Your foray into Native American nations and the application of how public banks might be able to serve them. Can you give us kind of a a little bit of a a landscape of how the uh, Native Americans have been banking their sometimes considerable wealth? Well, in Washington State, we have a number of Native American nations uh, with their own uh, trust lands. And uh, all of them are, are, in many cases, stalwarts of the local economy. Some of them are located quite in the vicinity of larger cities. So they play an economic role that's become quite prominent. And of course, um, they have... uh, all a history of banking locally uh, or with major banks nationally. And so uh, a coalition of five of these Native American nations were located in the South Puget Sound area that's um, south of Olympia, our capital in Washington state, approached to me about the question of whether they might uh, open a public bank. Their interest was partly spurred by their knowledge about the work of the Sparkasse system in uh, Germany and how those are set up to serve a, a community. And because the Native American tradition is a heavy emphasis on community responsibility and community ties, uh, they found a real resonance with the idea of a bank that was dedicated to their local development. We at first had provided a link for them to experts from Germany. My role was more or less a liaison. And uh, a gentleman came uh, from Bonn, Germany in early December 18 and had a quite a very good discussion with them about how the Barkasa bank expertise could be applied to their situation in the USA. Unfortunately, uh, COVID intervened, and the uh, offer or the plan really for the Sparkasa Foundation to send a team of seasoned bankers to Washington State to advise them ran aground. Uh, nobody could travel. 
could you just kind of briefly uh, describe what the Sparkassen are? Yes, uh, they're probably 200 and more large and small cities in Germany that own their own public bank. What that means is that these local banks uh, have a mandate to lend to business and of course households within a defined geographic area in the vicinity of their cities and towns. And it's been an enormously successful model for over 200 years in Germany. While I worked in Germany, I of course was well aware of the Sparkasse because you see their branches in every, every town. And uh, they seem to be one of the secrets to Germany's economic success because they've always been a ready lender to local business with a long tradition of patient capital. It fostered then many strong, smaller companies. They then uh, have set up a foundation and an interest of spreading the idea of using a public bank for local development and have been active in other countries besides the US. Actually, this would have been one of their first major projects in the US. But given the fact that the, the interest remained for these uh, Native American nations, five of them, uh, they asked me to step in and provide a review of their options uh, for a public bank or how this might work. And it became clear to me that one of their key interests was uh, besides the need to control their own money and have safe, what you might call keep their money at home in their own banking system, was an extreme interest in being able to bank uh, their considerable revenue from cannabis sales in a, in a bank that would take it without charging exorbitant fees. And they were experiencing the fact that they were banking now, sometimes with a credit union, and they were paying very large fees to do so. And so they were pleased with the idea that perhaps their own bank would give them more liberty there. So over, over the course of about six months, uh, I helped them compile some insights and I wrote a final report. And the method was basically during COVID to use the opportunity for widespread Zoom meetings. And I was able first to engage some uh, offices of the Federal Reserve System, starting with the San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank, because that's our region in Seattle too. They were very helpful in helping me set up a, a, a uh, Zoom meeting with several Federal Reserve officials who were interested in minority banks. And of course, Native Americans uh, are in that category. And they lamented how few banks there were, public or otherwise, uh, that belonged to the Federal Reserve System or, or of any, any banks, whatever. Uh, I described to them exactly the kind of bank uh, the Fed, the Sparkos advisors proposed setting up, which would be on that model of being owned by the tribe, basically operated as a nonprofit with most of its capital, most of its earnings being returned to its capital, et cetera. And uh, to my surprise, uh, the lawyers in the Federal Reserve and others said, well, that could work. We have no problem with it. There's no law in the U.S. that would prevent it. And that was a starting point. But then we realized that the Federal Reserve, well, because of COVID's inter intervention, we found that 
we really had to explore more broadly given the opportunities under US banking law. So basically the report looked at how the tribes then, Native American nations could form a bank on the model of a normal commercial bank in the United States, but operated basically as a nonprofit. And as part of our Zoom meeting research then, and with the help of the Federal Reserve, we, I and also the members of the board of these Native American nations had conversations with three existing Native American banks, and they're among the very few. The first one was in Montana with the Eagle Bank. Second one was with the Chickasaw Community Bank in Oklahoma. And the third one was with the Native American Bank based in Denver, Colorado. Um, and each was slightly different, but all of them had a focus on mainly the development of the tribe and its, its economic future uh, by means of supporting tribal business and tribal households. To take one of the examples, the Eagle Bank in Montana, they made quite clear that uh, they were operating in a manner that was not normal for a commercial bank. For example, they didn't lend widely to real estate. They operated then uh, with putting all of their uh, revenue back into the bank's capital. They paid no um, dividends to shareholders. It was owned by the tribe. And uh, in their view, it was a very successful bank, uh, but it was still modest because it's all operated in the town of Polson, Montana, near the Flathead Lake in northwestern Montana, which is not a heavily populated area. It's north of Missoula and Helena. But they were making a go of it. And more than that, they were doing fairly well. They owned, and it was serving then the, the tribe the bank was still in its early years of operation, but they felt they had uh, achieved something. And it had taken a while uh, to get it done to start the bank. And one of the, uh, the methods they described for founding this bank is a method that was recommended to us by other people, including Washington State's bank regulator. And that is they bought an existing bank and then converted it to the tribal needs. In, in essence, they're buying a bank charter. And of course they buy the business, but they don't have to maintain the, the same exact model of the business, then they convert it. And they do this in cooperation with the Montana, in this case, the Montana state regulator. But in the course of my research, I also found that the Federal Reserve has a program to promote minority owned banks, but it's not very successful. They don't have too many successes. Uh, they have something called the Partnership for Progress, a kind of generic, not interesting name, but uh, they have, a, based on that, a commitment then to be very, very forward-leaning in supporting the development of minority-owned banks. And in addition, um, but it helps explain why they were so cooperative with me when I said I wanted to help found a Native American bank. They were already on board with that as far as policy goes. Uh, in addition, I got excellent help from the Minneapolis uh, Federal Reserve Bank because they 
have been given the mandate to especially serve uh, the numbers of Native American nations in their, their region. So in all, I found a, let's say, a policy atmosphere for very favorable for establishing a minority of bank, but nevertheless, a uh, few examples of recent successes. There's also some money available, right, for... Yes, yeah, so that's the other part of it, that um, as you mentioned at the beginning, uh, many Native American nations now have developed some strong business activity. And of course, prime among them are the casinos they operate. And uh, that's the case of all five of the Native American nations that I was advising. And I know that when the German banking expert came here in 2019, he was surprised to find that they had definitely the capital to found a bank. And he said worldwide, when they work with minorities to try to establish some kind of banking program, the largest problem is they don't have capital in order to really get started. But that's not the case for the Native American nations, and many of them. Well, I was thinking of government money, though, on, on a national level. At least there are bills, I think, that would, like the public bank bill, I think, would make some uh, capital available, particularly for minority banks. Yes, uh, it, it's come even more favorable as the under the new administration and under the efforts to support minority communities and the difficulty of our post-COVID uh, economy. The Emergency Capital Investment Program, which started earlier this year, is mm -hmm. focused on minority institute depository, MDIs categorically, as we say, and uh, even offering uh, $1.2 million as bonus to get it underway quickly. So there's a real focus there that, you know, obviously there's some commitment to trying to rebalance or at least to balance better uh, some of the, the monetary uh, resources and assets uh, available in these communities. Yes, and uh, one of the things we rec I recommended in our, this report uh, is that a, a Native American bank include within its structure the CDFI, Community Development Financial Intermediary. And uh, that is a wonderful tool set up by the Treasury Department and is largely their design to serve minority gr groups and communities. And... Uh, it's rather a low-hanging fruit in terms of it's being fairly easy to establish. Um, and we did talk as well in our research with a Native American, a manager of a Native American CDFI here in Washington State, the Colville Nation. And uh, they've been in, in operation a number of years and have made a difference uh, in their area, which is not a very much, not a very populated area. So I, that was one of the things that all that the bankers we spoke with, who were Native American bankers, also praised the fact that they had CDFIs as part of their structure, which means they get favorable lending terms, and as you say, also grants from the U.S. Treasury program uh, for to support CDFIs, and they also um, attract capital from other banks, large and small, because that helps these banks meet their Community Reinvestment Act requirements. Which is an obligation that chartered banks have to serve the communities that they are in. 
the CRA. Of course, in the architecture or the ecosphere of public banks, we expect uh, and include CDFIs uh, as really important components for getting the money to the street because CDFIs, unlike many commercial banks, are, are, are really focused on the success of their, of their lending, a little like the Sparkassen, uh, you know, that they, they follow their, their loans, uh, they know their customers, they stick with the businesses, and they, and they work for success. Uh, community banks, of course, are also rather in that category. Are the banks that they're anticipating depositories for, you know, retail bank operations? Oh, yes. I mean, one of the drawbacks of a CDFI standing alone is that it's like a revolving fund. It doesn't have too much capital growth and any ability to leverage capital. But the, uh, in the case of the Native American banks, um, they attracted deposits from their region, not just from tribal members, but from the regions in which they work. And the depository banks, then they were able to extend their lending capabilities. That was particularly true of the Chickasaw Community Bank, which is actually located in Oklahoma City and competes head to head with other banks, commercial banks there for business and for deposits. And Oklahoma has probably, is probably the state with the largest number of Native American owned banks, many of them quite small, also some credit unions. And they, uh, are regulated, the, uh, the regulator from the Kansas City Federal Reserve told me that, uh, told us in our Zoom meeting, including the Native American members of the board, that the Federal Reserve regulates them in a different manner from normal commercial banks because they understand their role as having limited capital, as having a purpose to serve the tribal needs or the Native American nation needs above all and they don't have these extensive real estate lending and other programs. So there are special case for them and they're able then to, I guess, remain viable banks uh, with the Federal Reserve access. And of course they are given guidance by the Federal Reserve, but they say it's not the same as they give a commercial bank, a normal commercial bank. So we definitely need the, these types of community banks I did have a question about if you buy a bank, I assume you buy the liabilities along with it, right? I mean, you must have some long-term loans that are maybe, might be bad loans. It might be why they're selling it because they can't make a go of it. So what do they do with these things that are already on the books when they buy a bank? Yeah, I didn't get into those details, uh, but the ones that the, the three, well, the two cases that I talked with, the Chickasaw Nut Bank and the Bank in Montana, I believe they had to you know, absorb any kind of losses that that bank had. But apparently, you know, they've done their homework and their due diligence and they understand the full cost of this, not just the buying price. Uh, but it appears that uh, they were successful. I don't know. I mean, your, your point is well taken, but they didn't mention any bad experience with that. Um, of course, in both cases, buying a bank in Montana or perhaps in Oklahoma is probably simpler than doing it in Washington State, where we have a, a higher median income or less, and we have a, fewer banks and higher prices. And uh, 
the the cost of getting the cost of capital for the Native American nations to initially purchase a bank would be higher, for sure. The when you when you buy a bank, as I understand it from uh, one of our banker consultants, is that you know you really have a variety of ways of of, of dismissing or uh, selling off some of the assets. Certainly, maybe even selling off uh, the. Uh, the customers to other local banks and depends upon the, the nature of the banks. But as you say, Dennis, the due diligence, when you're looking at buying a bank, all of that has to be factored and you have to take those into account when you're looking at, uh, at your business plan, your revised business plan, uh, taking it from, let's say, a retail bank into a mission-driven public bank uh, is, a, is a bit of a shift, but you're also shifting management and other, you know, really the whole uh, ecosphere of the, of the bank operations. Um, I was surprised to hear you say, and, and really uh, pleased to hear you say that the Fed is so forward leaning in this category. And it certainly seems to me that uh, other minorities beside the Native American nations uh, are also on their uh, targeted list. Uh, MDAs, the black owned banks, uh, those minority institutions that that struggle to serve urban communities are every bit as uh, uh, much a, a, a target, a legitimate target for the Fed's interest. We certainly hope to see that in some of the projects that we're uh, focused on around the country, that the Feds will, will assist uh, in creating these new public banks that can have that, that purpose. Yes, and uh, as I mentioned, the program called the Partnership for Progress that has created, been created by the Federal Reserve has a website that lists all of the current minority-owned banks that they consider minority-owned banks. Unfortunately, it's not a long list. And uh, the list, as you said, other communities beside the Native Americans. And uh, I, I think the Federal Reserve probably feels that that is a somewhat of a policy failure that they haven't been able to really jumpstart uh, banking. So I, I don't, can't explain all of the reasons why that is, but it is a very, it, to start a bank ex nova, as they say, is very difficult. Uh, in other words, it's probably much better to buy an existing small bank. And the, this, as you probably know, the process has to start with the state regulator. We were told then that the Native American nations here should approach the Washington State Regulator, follow the normal process for a commercial bank, obtain a charter, and then on the basis of that charter, they would obtain Federal Reserve access as well. And also in parallel with that FDIC. In fact, the regulator in Washington State uses an FDIC application form so that both are completed in, in tandem. It, it's, it's a bit of banker lore that the regulatory agencies will delay uh, and, uh, and can stretch out these, these procedures for quite a while so that there's certainly no guarantee that a charter would be forthcoming with that. And I think that's certainly one of the things that we saw in American Samoa, where the only other U.S public bank exists uh, outside of the ones that you've mentioned as, uh, as Native tribes. So the regulatory process is a juggernaut, and uh, it's wonderful. I think it's encouraging to see that the Fed has at least a dimension of interest in bringing these things forward, because 
the difficulty or the challenge of a publicly owned nonprofit bank fitting into the FDIC regulators' heads uh, is a challenge. I, you know, you know, considering the momentum of the status quo and the uh, the lack of perhaps creativity and innovative entrepreneurial spirit in the bureaucratic um, tribe. Uh, <laughs> we did wait. The Washington State regulator, just like the Federal Reserve, was very forward-leaning about the opportunity to have a Native American bank. They also felt that would be a feather in their cap if it actually happened. So I think there's an awareness in the government regulatory side that there's a great need that's being uh, unmet. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, it still is unmet. You mentioned also describing a bit about my work when I was in Germany and my familiarity with the public banking system there. And besides the Sparkos system, I became very familiar with the national public bank uh, called the KFW, the Credit Unstalled for Wieder Aufbau, which translates as the Credit Institution for Reconstruction. But it's really one of the largest banks in Europe right now and is a major political tool for the German government, but it does a lot of good work in backing up lending for renewables in Germany, for example. They helped uh, spark the um, widespread uh, use of wind turbines and solar panels as renewable energies and the financing of that, both for consumers in terms of uh, retrofitting their homes for heat uh, uh, conservation and also for the uh, producers in terms of subsidizing loans for solar panel companies and for wind turbines. Where does it where does it get its capital and liquidity? Do you know? That's the key question. Um, it emerged from the Marshall Plan of the late 40s and early 50s, uh, which was always set up as a repayment system in which the, the U.S. government provided the capital, the then bond West German authorities uh, would parcel out that in lending to particular businesses, small, large, and small. To It was always dedicated to support what they call small and medium business. And it was uh, then lent, it was not grant, it was lent to these firms with the provision for a repayment. And then over the years, as that those capital loans are repaid, the fund within the control of the West German government grew. And then by the time the Marshall Plan was phased out in the early 1950s, there was significant money there. It's not a depository bank there, right? So direct depository bank. No, no. But then it's basically a, a bank that is, um, I mean, I, its capital is, you know, based on the full faith of the German government, but it's also based on the large scale loan lending programs they have both uh, within the German economic system and overseas. They do overseas lending for exporting and other kinds of things. And, uh, they also have um, extensive aid programs. In other words, the German overseas uh, foreign assistance program coordinates some of its programs with the KFW in terms of lending 
to programs for economic development in developing countries. We clearly need that now. I mean, infrastructure is a big issue. We've been big supporters of the National Infrastructure Bank, which would be on the model of the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. But the Reconstruction Finance Corporation issued bonds, and that's where they got their liquidity. And I think K I've read that KFW issued green bonds, at least, I know. I don't know if they do that routinely for all their liquidity, or do they just create the money on their books? You know, it's a it seems to me that the government should be able to just create credit on its books and the money gets paid back. I'd love to see a model where that actually happens, but I don't know that it does. Yeah, I know they issue bonds, uh, but um, yeah, I, I can't fully answer your question, but the they do operate um, I think similar to the model of the North Dakota Bank, but they are not taking deposits of the revenue of the German government, I don't believe. And uh, do they share in the Sparkhausen deposits, perhaps? They do, well, they do insofar as they're participating in loans the Sparkhausen system makes. In other words, they have a sort of hierarchical system in which some of the capital that the Sparkhausen uses for term loans comes through the KFW at a federal level and then is part of a loan to a local business or a local household for a particular program. They're usually a very program targeted. And during COVID, the KFW has played an enormous role, sort of similar to our PPP, but with extremely, extremely generous repayment terms in terms of the lending to business. Uh, you can borrow 1% with 30 year whatever, and, and forgiveness forgiveness uh, provisions in the contract as well. Yeah. So uh, it's, a, it's a very good tool to support German economy. And the reason I particularly encountered it uh, was because of a instruction I had from Washington, D.C. to raise our interest and our, our concern about Airbus and about subsidies to the development of Airbus saying this was unfair competition for our Boeing aircrafts and uh, there should not be these uh, direct subsidies. And uh, so I, after some conversations with my counterpart in the economic ministry, he simply said, well, this is not our government subsidizing this. Uh, Airbus's development programs have been supported by loans from our semi-private KFW, our, our public bank. Uh -huh. And uh, so I could report back to Washington that the- uh, It's not the government. Done by the lending instrument that we had helped create for the Germans back in the 1950s. That's a really, uh, a really interesting point because we're, uh, we're looking at how a network of, a distributed network of public banks in the US could equate to something a little like that that you know that we would have some sort of a central banking pool that would enrich and enable the local public banks to move that money through their own uh, networks of uh, of lending dennis just one more question on sparkhausen do they the local governments don't own those banks there and actually no one owns them but they're not for sale they can't be i mean they're kind of they provide husbandry for the banks and, and, and stability, but they don't own uh, the banks and they can't be sold, correct? 
Yeah, that's correct. I probably misspoke by saying they're owned by the, they're basically controlled in many ways by the local community. They're set up as a, probably compared to a trust law in the U.S., in which uh, they're definitely owned by a, I guess you'd say, a legal structure in which the mayor of that particular city sits on the board, but it has other private participants from private economy. Mm. And it is a uh, tied to its charter that it can only lend within a certain area with a certain mandate. Mm. And you know, you're right, it also has a legal structure that it cannot be alienated, that is, it cannot be sold to any other party. It, it has to be within that legal structure only. It's, it's, in a sense, not part of the local government and has no mandate to give dividends to the local government and generally does not. What it does do is independently support cultural and sports programs and other things within the community with its profits. Where did the Marshall Plan money come from? Was that taxpayer money? Yes. Not just a credit that we issued. Yes. It was taxpayer money. Okay. I mean, it seems to me if we can set up Germany with the public infrastructure bank, we should be able to set up our own country with the public infrastructure bank. But of course, we, we don't have the capital right now, but we could create it. Well, anyway, just thinking. That was a different era post-World War II. And of course, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation still existed in 1946 and 47. There was an acting model within the U.S. structure to do that. Yeah, good point. Okay, well, it's been great talking to you. Did you have more, Walt? No, I just, I, I just think this has been very rich with so many important aspects for people who are following public banking and thinking and planning and particulars you shared, Dennis, were very instructive. And, and thank you so much. It's great to have you on the board of directors of BBI with all of your deep global experience. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. And uh, I'm not a banker, just as a former diplomat. So okay. well, that counts. That counts. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me on the program. Great talking to you. That was a reprised conversation with our dearly departed Public Banking Institute colleague, Dennis Ortblad, a diplomat, scholar, and an honored and effective partner in pioneering the launch of new American public banks. Now we hear from Dr. Thomas Marwa about his new book on public banks called Public Banks, Decarbonization, Definancialization, and Democratization. Thomas is a foremost authority on public financial institutions across the world, and this is the first part of a two-part interview we did with him for our TV show called The Public Bank Solution. I begin the book in many ways by trying to explode the myth that public banks are a thing of the past, that at one point in history, they were important in the post-war era to support industrialization or reconstruction, but since then, we've found little or no use for them. You just begin to sort of unpack that a little bit and you see the public banks are persistent and prevalent around the world, that there are still more than 900 public banks in existence in the global north and global south. And that if you add up all of the assets that they have, all those sort of investments that they've made uh, presently, you're looking at nearly $49 trillion in combined assets of public banks worldwide. That's looking at range um, 
of I think 40% of global GDP, or to put it otherwise, that just under 20% of all banking assets in the world, public and private combined, remain public in, in, in ownership and in control. So they are, they are important. Um, they are less important in some countries like the United States, um, and much more important in countries like Germany, uh, where you know a third of the, the banking market is, is publicly owned or state owned, or in places like India, where it might be 75%, or China, which would even be larger. But through much of Latin America as well, you'll find public banks are the predominant form of bank in those countries. So they're, they're still systemically important, and increasingly so. They're, their numbers and assets are growing over the last few years. And you point out that they're increasingly being seen as catalysts for change and for investment in public interest, as opposed Absolutely. to being corrosive. Yes, and this is one of, I would think, one of the big changes that we're seeing in, in recent years. So since the global financial crisis of 2008, 2009, but then especially since the sort of global recognition that we're really in a, a climate crisis since the 2015 COP agreement and the sustainable development goals that public banks can and should have a catalytic role in driving a global green and I would argue just uh, transformation towards mm -hmm. you know, net zero, but also a more sec socially equitable future for all of us. And public banks have really increasingly been put at the center of that in terms of their, their policies, their investments, and their ability to really direct finance in that direction. I use the word corrosive as a way of describing really with the alternative, which is the private capital markets, the private banks. One of the words in the title of your book is definancialization. And that financialization is really, uh, tell us why that is a corrosive component in the architecture of, uh, of public finance now. Um, basically, financialization, many would understand it as the increasing importance or dominance or prevalence of, of financial motives and financial profit-oriented decisions taking over the way in which we, we live and exist today. Particularly in banks, that means really simply using money to make more money and, and prioritizing that above all else. But I would also say that financialization is all also much more about this sort of penetration of that logic into government and into public policy, so that everything from the delivery of water services to the provisioning of social housing to the credit rating of governments themselves, their credit worthiness, right. begins to be subordinated to their ability to access private financial markets. And we begin to internalize that logic and, and reshape our lives around it to be credit worthy. Um, and definancialization in many ways is, is trying to reverse that. It's reversing the logic that the only provider of capital and money out there are private providers. So we need to bend everything we do to what they want us to do. And at the same time, find, finding and, and reclaiming and rediscovering those institutions already in existence that we have and have control over, potential control over, that can begin to slow the flows of money in, in global markets. Because financialization is about rapid investments, being able to put your money in and get your money out very fast. And we have the capacity and examples where you know, these institutions are meant to slow those finances. You draw them in, and then you reinvest it in your community, and then you fix 
that money within your, your, your affected community, your, your municipality, your state. And really the Bank of North Dakota is one of the first examples of that going back to the early 1900s. And they didn't call it definancialization back then, but the purpose of the Bank of North Dakota was to, draw, was to provide an alternative to the Wall Street banks that were sucking money and, and capital and wealth out of North Dakota and to find a local option that's able to draw in money and then redistribute it within that state and hold it there. And this is really um, a driving factor in many of the new financial institutions and public funds and banks that are emerging. So there's uh, one right now in, in, your, you know, in my country to the north of you in British Columbia, they've just created a new fund called NBC. And one of its main purposes is to invest in businesses and communities within British Columbia and in ways that it holds that capital there. And similarly with the Scottish National Investment Bank, mm. uh, Scotland, the, the, in the UK investment, the new UK investment bank in, in the UK, the Canada Investment Bank, and so on and so forth. It's finding real world examples by which we can reverse this policy of 40 years of financialization and begin to use money for public purpose and for community wealth building. A real clear example of the difference is that when we finance infrastructure through the private markets, we're often paying twice as much for the, for the investment, for the construction, because of that financialized component of needing to create profits for private parties. So we are at a leverage point where the people have a chance to take a stand for themselves. And I suppose that's where the, your term uh, democratization uh, comes into play. Again, uh, your, your new book, Public Banks, uh, Decarbonization, Definancialization, and Democratization. Let's talk about that for a moment, how important that is and what it is. My pleasure. I think democratization is one of the themes that I've been trying to explore and understand better um, for 15 or 20 years, and particularly in the case of public banks, hmm. because in the mainstream narrative, it's, it's always about how corrupt and politicized these banks are and, you know, essentially how they're just hotbeds of cronyism and so on. And no doubt there are examples of that in the past and in the present. But there are also examples of public banks and financial institutions that have meaningful ways by which we can, we, and I mean by that the people in, mm -hmm. in their community who own and control the bank, can exercise meaningful command over that institution and over the money in which they, they hold within it. So in the book, I talk about two examples. I talk about the German, well-known German example, the KFW Bank that has um, two ministers from the government at the sort of at the co-chair position alongside 35 other members from civil society, from trade unions, from, from the legislature, from the government, government representatives on the board and so on, that then give meaningful purpose and accountability and transparency to the policies that that bank then undertakes. And similarly to the south of you in Costa Rica, I talk about the Banco Popular, which is by far the most democratized uh, public bank in the world that I know of, uh, which has you know, been written into law in what they call the 2002 democratization law, which sets the, the bank, this sort of workers uh, council at the bank's governance committee composed uh -huh. of 290 members that draw on 10 different social sectors from within the country who then 
gives shape to the board of directors, the seven member board of directors, which includes four members from the workers assembly, the workers council that are elected, and then three members for government. So it's a co-governed bank mixing both government representatives and representatives from society itself. On top of that, they've done the incredibly important job of then requiring by law that all representation within the bank is subject to gender equity. So there must be 50% women on all major governing body decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, So in a seven member committee of the national board, for example, that would mean one year it might be four women, next year it'd be three women, but in alternation. So Mm -hmm. on on average, and just to sort of link it back to the questions of definancialization, decarbonization, Mm -hmm. I think this is vitally important that we find meaningful mechanisms by which society, communities, marginalized communities and and minorities can find voice within the financial institutions that we own and control so that these institutions, these public banks or public institutions, then create the the credibility and the legacy, the capacity to, to tackle these really big societal challenges decarbonization or or green transformations are going to be disruptive. Um, People are going to lose jobs. They're going to find jobs elsewhere, but there are going to be costs. And and public banks are going to be at the center of that, undoubtedly. And so then they must find the the credibility to tackle those challenges, to take on decarbonization, to do so justly based on a a firm uh, societal basis. And this is really a difference, a key difference in where we're seeing public banks, their trajectory today over the post-war era, when we're really in many cases, democracy was not really at the top of the list. It was your your standard sort of top down. Mm -hmm. Let's create these things. Let's drive industrialization and reconstruction and worry about democracy later. Uh Now, especially in the United States, the, but, you know, in practice elsewhere, the question of societal representation and command is vitally important for overcoming future challenges like global green transformations, but also tackling historic inequalities and historic wrongs uh, in terms of racial reconciliation, uh, indigenous communities, women, mm-hmm. and gender inequity, and so on. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, one of the thing points that you make is that uh, a public bank must be designed with a social commitment as a bedrock, as a foundational value for its operations and its planning. And I, and I think that here in the U.S., if you, as you look around, uh, when you look around at the markets that are exploring this, all of them, to my knowledge, and I know about most of them, uh, have a strong social commitment of equity, fairness, and also de-investment, disinvestment in those things that we know are not helping uh, secure the planet's health, uh, and or uh, sharing some of the wealth systemically with uh, with those people who have been left out. Um, that's a that's a very encouraging thing. And of course, when you talk about Banco Popular uh, in Costa Rica, uh, you're you articulated how much of the public is involved in that decision making. Well, th- some bankers might say, well, you know, how's the bank doing? You know. What kind of risk are they like making crummy loans and uh, and which, of course, is one of the <laughs> banker association claims that our public banks will not be able to know the difference between a good loan and a bad loan. 
I mean, they they obviously do <laughs> know the difference between a good yeah. loan and a bad loan. And certainly in many cases, public banks do better than yeah. the private banks in terms of if you want to assess them on profitability and, and stability, uh, they quite often outperform private banks. In the case of Banco Popular, I mean, like any other bank, it makes better and worse loans. Um, and, and I would hesitate you know, to say just because it's a, a public bank that it is going to necessarily be perfect. It's not. There are problems, there's issues, and it's, it's an entity within society. But it is one that is strongly supported by its community. And it's one that is transparent and accountable. And so mm-hmm. when things go wrong, we know it and we can fix it. Right. Yeah. Um, I would also point to those or respond to those critics that there are many other public banks elsewhere in the world. And I've been doing some interviews with uh, with different uh, ones in Europe recently and had a conversation with an official from what's called the Dutch Water Bank, which historically was about funding water and, 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 and created in the 1950s so that, you know, Netherlands wouldn't get submerged underwater, but it's gone into oh, yeah. social housing and into sustainable investments now. And has never had a default on a loan in its history, wow. ever. Similarly, many of the Nordic municipal banks uh, in Norway, Sweden, Finland, uh, similarly, none of them uh, have had a default on a loan. And I would love to see a private bank make that claim. Yeah. It's impossible, of course. And, you know, but not that that is an aim. Of course, banks have to take on risk and they have to support communities. And sometimes businesses go bad uh, and that's fine. That's, That's the nature of it. But it's, you know, is that accountable? Is it transparent? And and we know who they're making loans to and why they are. It's a fundamental difference between the public and the private when the public is done properly. Yeah, and of course, it, you illustrate how there is no transparency and little accountability in the private uh, bank market. You look at what happened in two thousand and eight and nine, and what continues to happen with the, you know, with the with the practices of the private banking industry. Well, you know, we don't really know everything that's going on there. You can follow it every day, but golly, there's a lot of stuff that's happening that is totally out of our sight. And by the way, with our money. You know, I mean, it, it, this uh, one of the things that public banks do is create a systemic shift uh, uh, about what money is. It's not a, not just not a commodity for profiteers. It's fundamentally relational. It, it has the relationship between people and enterprises. Uh, it is an enabler. It's neutral. But when you bring the heart of the public into it. Uh, you're changing the, the the nature of the of the institution of the utility. I'm just I want to mention just to read frankly from your from your book some of the key benefits of public banks. Just start just um, itemize them. Four of them here: uh, direct finance to priority economic sectors and geographic regions, to build the financial sector by filling the gaps in the credit supply, to promote economic stability. Uh, by playing a countercyclical lending uh, role, uh, and to improve financial standards, insisting on social, environmental, and human rights safeguards. Well, those are values that the private industry cannot provide us. We're at a time where the private capital markets and the private banks uh, are, lack the ability or the interest 
to really serve these needs of the people. So uh, we're kind of an inflection point because how much more debt can we take on as a society and a, and a government? We have to uh, reclaim control of our money uh, to be able to move things uh, uh, forward for a new era. This requires a, a huge amount of, of new capital investment. Could you give us just a, a thumbnail sketch of that about what role decarbonization or public banks have to do with that? This is similarly one of the absolutely fundamental horizons for public banks. Uh, their capacity and, and role that they can play in beginning to fund clean energy, to begin to invest in the kinds of infrastructure that's not going to cook us to death in the next 40 or 50 years. Um, but also, you know, supports innovations like retrofitting of housing at the community level or, or at the municipal level. So really the key role in terms of encouraging society to decarbonize or reduce the sort of ways in which we reproduce ourselves from very high carbon uh, automobiles or heating of houses or infrastructure to the low carbon or zero carbon uh, options that are available out there. And, and public banks are doing so both by funding and financing that trajectory, but by also demanding that of themselves insofar as setting very clear sustainability policies mm -hmm. or, or investment policies where they set floors like we will not invest in this if it's carbonizing the environment. We will yeah. only do it if it's decarbonizing. We will continue with the second portion of our interview with Dr. Thomas Marwa on the next edition of It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. Thomas's book is entitled Public Banks, Decarbonization, Definancialization, and Democratization, and it's available at your favorite bookseller. Well, that's it for this edition of It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. Our thanks to our guests, our sponsor, Public Banking Associates, and to you for listening. Be sure to check out Ellen's latest writings on the economy and the changing world of money by visiting ellenbrown.com. And for more information on public banking, visit publicbankinginstitute.org. For information on how local and state government leaders can obtain professional insight and counsel about public banks from key national experts, visit publicbankingassociates.com. I'm Walt McCree. See you next time on It's Our Money with Ellen Brown.